Have you seen those Christians? You know, the ones who seem to be unshakable. They persevere through hardship and trials. They're serving, they're striving, and they're rejoicing. People like the Apostle Paul and countless others through history. Now, it's easy to think of these people as your uber-Christians, to put them into a different category. And we say to ourselves, I could never be like that. And then we move on. But they're not uber-Christians. They're ordinary Christians. Yes, they're mature in their faith, but they have exactly the same resources at their disposal as we have. So what's the secret? We'll see that worked out in our passage this morning from Philippians 4, and Paul is going to read that for us. Hi, I'm Paul, and I'll be reading the Bible for you this morning. This morning's passage comes from Philippians 4, uh, verse 10 to the end of the chapter. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Now, three points this morning. Solid foundation, a life transformed, and press on. Now, the secret is not really a secret at all. Simply, it's the gospel and the outworking of its fruit. The gospel's not just to set and forget. We are called to grow to maturity. We're called to work with the Spirit to see the gospel of grace transform every area of our lives. As Paul writes, he encourages us to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul spoke of a righteousness from God that comes by faith. This is justification, that we are declared righteous. 
He's the judge, the lawgiver, and justification tells us about how it is that we measure up. It tells us that on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience, we are declared righteous, to be in right standing with God. And it's a declaration, it's an event that happens at our conversion. And it involves a two-way transfer. On one hand, we receive his righteousness credited to our account. And on the other, our sin with its just penalty is transferred to him. And for the Christian, this declaration, this righteousness is received, not achieved. Tim Keller sums it up like this. Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died to bring me to God. Now this is at the heart of what the Bible tells us that Christ achieved on the cross. But the concept of justification is not purely a religious idea. It's a way of speaking about some questions that are universal to people. The doctrine of justification, as we call it, gives God's answers to that question. The question of where we can find purpose and security, value and direction, identity and belonging. Now, while everyone has answers to these questions, I believe that no answers can stand the test like God's answers. Christ's righteousness puts an unshakable foundation under our feet upon which a radically different life can be built. It's unshakable because it rests not on our achievements, but on his. And we receive it. We don't achieve it. The question of belonging. Well, God's answer is that I belong because I'm a member of his family. Forgiven, adopted, we are part of his people because of Christ's work on the cross. Purpose. I have a purpose because I'm caught up in what God is doing in the world. Value. I have value because Christ gave his life to make me his. Security. I'm secure. My hope is is certain because Christ has done everything that I need to be accepted. Identity. I'm a cherished and loved child of God, co-heirs with Christ. I am made in God's image and then I am remade as I come to Christ. Justification gives answers to these questions. It gives us a radically solid foundation upon which a completely different life can be built. It gives us incredible security. It's a confidence for the future that transforms the present. But let's shift the picture a bit. More organic. I want you to think of your life like a tree, the trunk and the branches going up and the roots going down deep. Now, the further that those roots penetrate into the soil of the gospel, drawing on the life and the power that comes through God's grace, the more the visible tree grows to give rise to a different shape of life. That's maturity in Christ. 
roots sinking down deeper into the soil of the gospel and growing up into every area of our lives. Can you give me an example, you might ask? Well, certainly. The end of the letter that we have just been working through gives us a few. We're going to zoom in and focus on just two of them. That brings us to our next point, a life transformed. Now, I've already said that the gospel and its fruit, especially justification by faith, should transform how we as Christians understand and experience life. Now, we see this play out in the conclusion to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to focus in on how the gospel transforms, firstly, our relationship, and secondly, our circumstances. Number one, it does transform how we view our relationship with others. Now, we need to remember that, humanly speaking, there was massive differences between the Apostle Paul and the people of Philippi, and even between the Philippians themselves. Paul was Jewish. He was a Roman citizen with an extraordinary level of education for that day. He was well-travelled, articulate, cultured. Now, the Philippians, they were a mixed bunch. The book of Acts reveals a substantially Gentile congregation comprised of converted jailers, wealthy merchants, slaves. Where Paul had this rich Jewish heritage the Philippians prided themselves in their status as a Roman colony. It's kind of hard to see how they came together. It's kind of like today putting a Palestinian and an Israeli and expecting them to cooperate. Or trying to find a coherent group comprised of social activists on one hand and people wearing Make Australia Great Again caps. Or even trying to blend tradies with the academics. It could happen, but there would need to be something incredible to unite them. Now, it would be easy for Paul to emphasise the differences, for him to maintain the arm's length. Yes, he wants a relationship, he wants their support, but let's not pretend that we have much in common. He could have a bit of a utilitarian view. You know, I'm in it for what I get out of it kind of attitude. But let's look at the way that Paul speaks of his relationship with the Philippians. He writes to those who are my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. They are dear friends. And chapter 4, verse 10, he rejoices that they've had this opportunity to show concern for him. They sent Epaphroditus on a trip of more than 1,200 kilometres with a financial gift to support Paul while he's in prison. You can hear the genuine warmth in his words. He loves them and they love him. Paul's orientation is fundamentally other person-centred. Even though they're supporting him, his concern is not mainly about what he can get. He appreciates their support. Verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles, he writes. But his concern is primarily about what their support of him does for them, not them for him. So how does this work? 
How do they have this unity? Well, whatever they have in common, it transcends whatever differences they might have. This is where we see how the gospel transforms relationships. As Christians, we know that we are saved from judgment and death because of the cross, that Christ stood in our place, our representative and substitute. And this defines us. So no longer is Paul primarily caught up in his Jewish heritage or his social standing or his religious performance or his educational achievements. No longer are the Philippians primarily concerned with being citizens of Rome. Through the gospel, by God's grace and mercy, they have found a common identity. They are all sinners, saved by grace through the merits of Christ, not by any achievements of their own. This makes them all children of the same Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters with the same elder brother, Jesus Christ. They have a common citizenship, which is in heaven. Now, for us, in a society that is increasingly fracturing, where identity politics mean that people define themselves in opposition to others, that they stress what is unique and different from, about them from everyone else. The gospel of the Lord Jesus, it offers us a radical alternative. In a society that is increasingly clannish, we join together with those who share the particular feature that our group sees as most important. And then we stand against people who don't share our view. You see groups forming around age or race or politics or particular views on issues of justice or environmentalism or whatever. But the identity that we're given through the gospel is a wonderful antidote. Where identity politics breaks us, the gospel brings us back together. It doesn't erase our differences, but it transcends them. Paul is still Jewish. The Philippians still have their Roman heritage, but the citizenship that they have in heaven trumps them all. Revelation chapter 7 pictures God's people as a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But you might ask, doesn't this mean that we Christians are just another group, but with a religious identity, just another clique that embrace our own and exclude everyone else? Well, if we're honest, we must recognise that it has been exactly that on occasion. But I would argue it's only when the true implications of the gospel are ignored Scripture fundamentally teaches us about the basic unity and value of humanity in creation. It tells us that every single human being, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of gender, all the things that divide us, that each and every one of them have a unity 
because we are created in the image of God. It also teaches us about the fundamental unity that we have in redemption. We are all sinners in need of a saviour. And God, through Jesus Christ, he offers forgiveness and belonging to all who will turn to him with repentance and faith. It's not just for one group and not others. This forms a biblical foundation for a radical unity. So when we look at others, do we see commonality or difference? Do we look for what can bring us together or what can divide us? Well, growing in maturity, growing in our relationship with God, means that we see things more and more through the gospel lenses. And so we will see our relationships in light of what God is teaching us in the gospel. We will see unity, not division. We will rejoice that people from every different group are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love this about our church. We value and respect every person, even when those who oppose us stand vehemently against us. Even in them, we see a shared humanity and dignity. So I ask you, how do you see relationships? Are we on the front foot? Are we prepared to step across the divide? Are we confident in the identity that we have in Christ? Do we see others in that light? That we can accept and even rejoice in their differences? Any relationship works two ways. So how we express the unity that we have with all people might be different with those that, who don't share our trust than with those who do. Our experience in the church with our brothers and sisters shouldn't mean that we neglect those outside the church because we share a common humanity. But we experience that in a special way. As we grow in our maturity, our church should more and more reflect this wonderful fruit, embracing people of all kinds with the gospel of grace. Secondly, the gospel transforms how we view our circumstance. Now, I'd like to suggest that if anyone had reason to feel sorry for themselves, the Apostle Paul would validly be amongst their group. He's in prison in Rome. He's been in custody for a number of years at this stage, both back in Caesarea Philippi and now in Rome, and he's facing a trial that could earn him a death sentence. And on top of that, there are opponents trying to make things hard for him. They're preaching a distorted gospel. They're seeking advantage while he's out of the picture. And this hard patch for Paul is not just a blip. It's not just a one-off. This difficult period is not just... And this hard patch is not just a blip or a one-off, just a difficult period in an otherwise comfortable life. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So what does this guy say about his circumstance? What does he encourage the Philippians with, those who have their own troubles as well? Well, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And then in, in our passage today, he writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's learned the secret of contentment in any and every situation. How? Well, many... Many might look at Paul and think at least he's unique, you know, or perhaps that he's not giving us the whole picture. He's glossing over the hard stuff. But he's not unique, nor does he hide the challenges he faces. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he writes this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. And this man tells us he has learnt the secret of contentment. So what is the secret? Well, it's no secret at all. Paul is merely seeing his circumstances through gospel lenses. So what does the gospel teach him? Well, he knows he has the ultimate treasure that circumstance cannot take it from him. He can say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He has confidence that this is just the beginning and the best is yet to come. In Romans 8 verse 32, we read this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He knows that God's purposes in his life and in the world will not be blocked by his circumstances. He knows that Christ's work of salvation is complete and he has confidence that the one who began the good work in him will carry it on to completion. Nothing will stop that. The gospel teaches him that his loving heavenly father is at work in all things for good. 
what he is experiencing comes to him not from random circumstance, not from devilish plotting, but from the hand of his loving Heavenly Father. Psalm 25 verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. He knows that through the gospel, a door into a beautiful eternity has been opened. And this vision of the future transforms his experience now. Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That future is secure. The gospel teaches that. God has called him heavenward. Paul's joy is in the Lord, not in his circumstance. And he has learned to look at his circumstance through the lens of the gospel. That is his secrets. So we've begun to explore some of what we see of the gospel's implications for understanding and experiencing relationships with others and our circumstances. Can I encourage you, keep working, work together to explore how the gospel shapes every aspect of your life. So we might see more and more of our lives through gospel lenses, allowing that what we have been freely given in Christ, it might extend to affect every area of our life. We've talked about just two areas here. There are so much more. How does it affect work? How we parent our children? How we conduct our marriages? What we do with our leisure time? What our ambitions should be? That brings us to our last point. Press on. So as we come here, not just to the end of this sermon, but the end of this amazing letter to the Philippians, with its incredible vision of the Christian life, we need to see that a life that is built on the foundation of the gospel of Lord Jesus is perfectly secure. It is a life with its roots reaching down into the gospel of grace, growing up, growing into maturity, straining towards what is ahead, pressing on, striving to take hold of that, for which Christ took hold of us. And Paul presents himself as a model for us. He calls us to follow his example. He repeats this. Chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 9. He echoes this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So I asked at the beginning, is this just for the uber-Christian? Is it an optional extra? No. It's for everyone. But it's something that we must work at. Physical maturity is pretty much inevitable. You're born, you grow. But growing to spiritual maturity is not the same. I can remember reading a t-shirt. It said, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. If this is our attitude to the Christian life, we are missing so much of the privilege and benefit of what we have called to be. But there's more. We can't stand still as Christians. Paul understands that. Life as a Christian is like walking up a down escalator or swimming up against a strong current. 
If we stand still, it means that we are actually going backwards. As COVID restrictions have taught me, when we take a break from physical exercise, we don't stay where we were. Putting our discipleship on hold means we become spiritually flabby. Press on, brothers and sisters. Live up to what you have attained, Paul says. Stay with the basics. Don't ever leave the practices of time in the word, time in prayer, fellowship with others, serving his people, witnessing to the world. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.